If you were to watch the evening news or catch what's going on in the world through Twitter or your favorite podcast, it wouldn't take long to realize that our world is turning upside down quickly. Things that used to be simply assumed are now questioned. And the basic building blocks of our culture are being torn down and discarded. A few examples just from the last week or two. The Republican side of the California recall election featured a former men's decathlon Olympic gold medalist who now thinks he's a woman. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is more concerned with enemies like white rage than he is with China. The mayor of Hudson, Ohio, had to call for the resignation of the entire school board because the school has been giving pornographic assignments to the students. One of the Democratic presidential nominees in our last presidential election posted a photo of him and his so-called husband and the babies they just adopted while sitting in a hospital bed as if one of them used it. We're told that we should be woke, awakened to the need for social justice and diversity and equity and inclusion, but is wokeness biblical? Or are we using the wrong measuring stick to determine what should be? There's great confusion about sex and gender, great confusion about race and ethnicity, and a whole host of other things. We no longer know what we are or what we're for. But there is a cure for that confusion. The story that God tells answers those questions. And the heart of his answer is found in the opening chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1 through 3 tells us who we are, what we're for, what is wrong with us, and what God is doing about it. So go ahead and turn there in your Bible. This morning we're going to take a brief journey through these chapters. And the goal is that we will once again hear from God the basics of who we are so that we can learn to see ourselves and our world the way that God does. Now, I'll warn you, I do not have a whole lot on the PowerPoint this morning. In fact, that slide right there is going to be the first half of the message, okay? As long as we are just walking through the text in Genesis, that's all you've got for visuals. So tune in and follow along as we go. It'll be a good exercise for you. And uh, we're going to start right at the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1, and I'm going to start by reading down through verse 25, and we're going to take it some big chunks, some small chunks, and I'll just comment as we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth 
and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Quick observations here on what we've read so far. God created out of nothing. The fancy word for that is ex nihilo, out of nothing. So think about this for a minute. That means that the properties that anything has, it has because God put it there. There wasn't anything beforehand that he was working from. So everything that is there, the properties that that thing has, are there because God put it there. He determines it. And we see here the creator-creature distinction. There's the creator God and there's everything else, all the stuff that he's made. And that distinction is important. We need to keep that in mind. And the other thing to note as we've read this is over and over you hear the phrase, and God said... And when God speaks, it happens. God creates by his word. All right, the next section, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let us make. 
God is a God who is in community, and when he makes his people, they are also designed to be people in community, in relationship. He says, in our image, after our likeness, our fundamental identity is that we are made in the image of God. That's our fundamental identity. That's who we are. We are like God, and we represent God in the world. Now, we are not God. But there's something about us that reflects God, that mirrors him, that images God. And that identity is the most basic and unchanging thing about us. God says, let them have dominion. Having dominion is fundamental to our identity. This is who we are. This is what we are created for. Notice, this is the first thing that God says to himself. Verse 26, after saying that man's going to be in his image. And it's the first thing that he says, verse 28, to the man after he creates him. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. What does dominion look like? Well, it looks like being fruitful and multiplying, for starters, procreation is fundamental to our identity. It's fundamental to God's design for who we are. The union of a man and a woman is inherently fruitful. Be fruitful. This is who we are supposed to be. By the way, that should clue you in that there are plenty of unions that are not according to God's design, and one way that shows up is that they are not fruitful. Homosexual relationships are not fruitful. Our presence in the world, then, is to be ever-expanding, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. So fill, we should be looking to expand our influence, to move from this place to that place and conquer, so to speak. Fill the earth and subdue it, meaning Bring the creation into alignment with God's design, with God's work of creation. God got things started in the garden, and then he turned it over to man. You've seen what I did, now it's your turn, is what God is saying. Fill it up and bring order to it. What does God do? He creates these spaces, days one through three, and then he fills them orderly, verses, or days four through six. We're supposed to do the same thing. And we're supposed to have dominion over the animals. And it says, male and female, he created them. Maleness and femaleness are both in the image of God. There are two sexes, two genders, male and female. That's God's design. And there is a crying need in our day to embrace maleness and femaleness in the church as well as in the world. They are not the same. And that's a good thing. Pick it up with me in verse 29. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God, rest, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So God gave every plant and its fruit for food. It is in the nature of God to be a giver of good things. And we see that God rested, not because God was tired, but he's setting the pattern for us. We are to be like him. We are to work. That's what we are made to do. We are workers. And we're to stop to rest. And both of those, the work and the rest, are worship. Pick it up with me in verse 4 of Genesis 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made, <clears throat> made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay, so God made the man, and he made him out of dirt. The word that's used there is made. It, it's, it, it, he just takes dirt and makes the man. Almost like making a burger to put on the grill, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost a very utilitarian description of what God does. He grabs some dirt and he makes the man, okay? And then he breathes into him the breath of life. It's interesting to read the, the account because in the beginning, God creates ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing. But then you just see God taking what he's already made and separating and dividing and forming and doing all these other things with it. And so he forms the man from the dirt, which, by the way, you're going to see the plants and the animals are formed the same way. There's only one thing that's not. Okay? And then we read that God planted a garden. And he puts Adam in the garden that he planted. And then, after he puts Adam in the garden, he caused the garden to grow. Did you notice the order there? 
He puts Adam in the garden and then he causes the plants to grow up out of the dirt. It's as if he's saying, Adam, watch this. Okay, take notes. And he sees the, the things grow. And God says, now, you're going to do this. Granted, it's going to take longer, but this is what you're going to do. You're going to take care of this place. You're going to work it. You're going to keep it. So he commissions him to work and keep. And the word work means to tend, to garden, to cultivate, to make it flourish. And the word keep means guard, protect the garden, watch for enemies, defend it. Those same two words are used later of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple. Why? Because they're supposed to guard the purity of the sanctuary from uncleanness and they're supposed to serve to see that the worship of God flourishes in that place. Think about our related words. Adam is there, he's going to cultivate the garden, right? That's what we do, we cultivate the earth. Well, in that word, you hear the word cult, which is not actually, when we think of a cult today, we think of a crazy group, right? But it has to do with worship. The cult is, is worship. So cultivating the ground is connected to worship. And then think of the word culture. The culture that we live in or the culture that we cause to be. When we talk about our culture, we should be thinking about our commission to make it flourish. And that happens when the culture is a means of worshiping God. When, when the culture honors or glorifies God. So what is to be the relation of the Christian to the culture? Are we supposed to run away from culture and hide? No, we're supposed to work it. Advance the kingdom. See that the culture flourishes by operating according to God's design. God's design is not that Adam was to work the garden and then he would leave the garden and go somewhere else to worship. And that his spiritual life would be over here while his secular work life was over here. No, it's all together. All of life is designed to be worshipped to God. Whether it's working, resting, cultivating, culture, whatever it is, it's all part of worship to God. And God gives a law word in the verses that we read. He says, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, except this one. God gives great freedom. Everything they would ever need and a whole lot more. But freedom has boundaries. Here's the fence. Don't go beyond this. And if you go beyond this, you'll die. Obeying that law would demonstrate submission to the lordship of God. Disobeying it would be rebellion against his lordship. It would be a rejection of God's created design to represent him in the world. Pick it up with me in verse 18 now of Genesis 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So imagine the scene. I know you've read this many, many times, but try to imagine the scene again. The narrator of the story, God, tells us, the reader, that Adam needs a helper fit for him. But Adam doesn't know that yet, as the story unfolds here. And then what does God do? After noting that Adam needs a helper, God brings him animals. And the animals are formed out of the dirt, okay? So God's, you know, grabbing more dirt and forming the animals and sending them on to Adam. And so here you have, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Zebra, and Adam says, zebra. And Mr. and Mrs. Elephant come along, elephant. And there go Mr. and Mrs. Blue Jay, and Adam names them Blue Jay. And Adam goes through this whole process, and reading between the lines a little bit here, Adam says, I'm noticing a pattern here. How come they all have a partner? Where's my helper? And God puts Adam to sleep and he takes a rib out and builds or fashions a woman. This is a different word. This is not the same word when God grabbed the dirt and made Adam. This is a different word. This is art. This is intentional there's something different about this. Men and women are fundamentally, in their very design, different. And when Adam sees her, he celebrates. He starts speaking in poetry. And now there's an intentional pattern that is set here in these words in Genesis. And it's unmistakable. A man will leave his father and mother. The man doesn't leave his father and father. He doesn't leave his mother and mother. He leaves his father and mother. That's the normal pattern. And he will hold fast to his wife, not his husband, not anything else. He holds fast to his wife. And they become one flesh so that they can be fruitful and multiply. They're designed for this. And there's one exception that scripture allows to all of that, and that is singleness, if you're called to singleness. That's it. There's no other exceptions to the pattern. Pick it up with me in chapter 3, verse 1. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So God has given a word, a law. The serpent comes and questions God's word. The serpent substitutes his own word in place of God's word. And the woman listens to the word that in that moment seems to give more freedom. Seems to let her decide what she should and should not eat. And the man, who the text says is there speaks no word. When God gave the instruction, who was there? Only the man. He was to be the teacher. Now, he may have already, it seems like, communicated the word. We don't know if he communicated it accurately or if he added to it or what the story is, but he communicated it, but he did not step in to speak a word to stop the woman from disobedience. He fails to guard the garden. He fails to guard his wife. Adam should have spoken up and said, no. When a husband or father says no to something in order to obey God's word, he's guarding the garden. He's doing what he's designed to do. But Adam fails to do that. Pick it up in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The results of sin that you see there are separation and shame and ultimately death. And the blame game begins, not taking responsibility. The man blames the woman, and he blames God for giving him the woman. God, your design here is flawed. And men have been abdicating their responsibility ever since. And the woman blames the serpent. This is the victim mentality that dominates our culture today. 
Don't take responsibility yourself. Find someone else that you can blame. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God curses the serpent. There will be enmity between him and the woman. And one day his head will be crushed by a man who comes from a woman. God curses the woman, pain in childbearing, pain in her relationship with her husband. And God curses the man because he listened to the voice of his wife rather than the voice of God. This is a failure of leadership. And so now his leadership will be plagued with difficulty. His work, working the garden and leading his wife will be plagued with difficulty. So that's the story that we have in the opening chapters of Genesis. And what I want to do this morning is I want to draw out for you, I'm going to give you three words and talk about each of them that, that help us to understand who we are and what we are for. The first word is this, word. God's word is to be the standard. Throughout the first chapters of Genesis, we hear God's word spoken. And when it speaks, things come into being. God speaks reality into existence, and it's his word that determines what something is and what it's like and what it's for. God's word sets the boundaries. For example, on day three, he separates the dry land from the sea, setting the boundaries of each. And then he says, for instance, in Job 38, as he's talking to Job, who shut in the sea with doors? When it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God is the one who sets the boundaries in every aspect of life. And in the same way, God puts boundaries and limits around men and women. Here are the boundaries of what it means to be a man. Here are the boundaries of what it means to be a woman. And they're different. God gave the man and the woman a boundary in the garden. Don't eat from this one tree. But the woman discarded God's word for the serpent's word. And Adam, Adam was wordless. Adam should have spoken God's word to the woman. But Adam remained silent. So the serpent's word was allowed to stand. That in and of itself is a, an important idea for us to understand. The serpent's word is speaking loudly in our culture and we have a responsibility to speak God's word 
in opposition to the serpent's word. Our culture today has rejected God's word for the serpent's word. And the serpent's word tells us things like, there is no objective truth. And all claims to truth are just power grabs. And you can't possibly know my truth because you haven't experienced my oppression. But God's story reminds us that only his word creates reality. He tells us what we are, what we are like, and what we are for. So think, for instance, about the issue of justice or social justice. Our culture wants to define justice according to outcomes. If someone has too much money, it should be taken away so that things are equal. Tax the rich. If someone chooses a lifestyle that is inherently fruitless, like homosexuality, then we need to engineer things so that they can obtain fruit. Uh, We'll open up adoption to them. If someone shares skin color with a group of people who experienced injustice in the distant past, then people of other skin colors should today be made to pay for that injustice, even though neither party today was actually involved. But God says... We are not supposed to use unequal weights and measures because that's not justice. The same standards apply to us all. Social justice is not true justice. Social justice is an artificially engineered attempt to even out the outcomes and call it justice when it is by definition, according to God's law, injustice. Social justice is injustice, according to God. We've redefined sin in our day. One of the great sins of our time is whiteness. Another great sin lurking behind many accusations today is the sin of believing in objective truth. You may be charged with sin and called to repentance simply because you have a different skin color. Whose sin, you ask? Unnamed ancestors whose sins you supposedly benefit from, but... God calls the man and the woman to account for the sins that they personally committed. God's word establishes his law, and violations of his law are what defines sin. We've also redefined sin in other ways. We've said that sinful desires are not actually sinful. It's okay to have deviant desires as long as you don't act on them. It's not what the Bible says. Romans 1 speaks of those who exchange God's truth for a lie, and it tells us God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The passions are dishonorable. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And James tells us that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Yes, desires that go against God's law word are sinful desires. Because God says so. And this rejection of God's law is really ultimately an issue of worship. We were created to worship and glorify God. The passage in Romans that I just read says that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Why did God do that? Well, the previous verse 
reads, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. And then it says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Why? Because they did not worship God, but instead substituted the creature and worshiped the creation. And that's what we've done today. We've replaced God with ourselves. We've replaced God's law word with our own subjective ideas. We do what is right in our own eyes. The second word I want to give you is image. Who are we? What are we? The Genesis story tells us that we are made in the image of God. We are representatives of God. Our essential nature is that we image him in the world. That's where our dignity comes from. That's where our value lies. This is truly one of the most fundamental questions, if not the most fundamental question of our time. Do we live in an ordered world where we have an identity that is given to us by God? Or do we live in a random chance world where we are free to declare in ourselves what our identity will be? See, the story God tells shows that we are created by him with an identity determined by him for a purpose given by him. We're created in his image, male or female. We're created to work and to worship. As soon as God created the man, he gave him work to do. This is why when a government steps in, and says, we're going into lockdown and you're not allowed to work, it's such a fundamental offense against the created order. You can't live in this world according to God's design without working. And our purpose is determined by God. If I put two blocks of wood up here and two nails, and I called two of you up to pound in the nails, and I gave one of you a hammer and the other one a chisel, one of you would be frustrated. Why? Because you're trying to use a tool for something other than its designed purpose. And when men and women get confused about who they are and what they're for, we're fighting against God's design. See, God's design is good. He made men to lead, to guard and keep, and he made women to help in submissive support. That design is present in the story in the garden before sin enters the picture. It's part of God's good design. That's why, for example, when you read the story of David and Solomon and David is getting ready to hand off the kingdom to Solomon and he's telling him how to lead, he says, show yourself a man. We know what he means. What if David had said, show yourself to be a woman? As you lead this nation, we'd read it and go, what? And it's why when we come to the New Testament and read something like what Titus 2 says, that the older women should, quote, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. End of the quote there. We know that God places an extremely high value on the family and the home. This is not less valuable work. 
This is exactly what she's been designed for. And when she does this, the word of God is not reviled. Why? Because the word of God is being upheld. It's being honored because it's God who spoke this design into existence in this way. Our culture wants to destroy that design. And it's hard, I admit, it is hard for us, having grown up in the culture, to just accept what God says as if, you know, there shouldn't be any other way. And we we tend to kind of question it. But I want you to understand, historically, there has been an effort to undermine God's design. And we've grown up in the middle of that effort. A thousand examples could be multiplied. Let me give you just one. Jared Longshore, in a book that he edited called what, By What Standard, he shares this. Quote, a key leader in the second wave of feminism in America, Kate Millett, was a homosexual woman and author who held meetings in one of which the following call and response were heralded. Okay, so we did a, a responsive reading of a psalm this morning. Here's a responsive call and answer that was done here in this meeting. Why are we here today? To make revolution. What kind of revolution? The cultural revolution. And how do we make cultural revolution? By destroying the American family. How do we destroy the family? By destroying the American patriarch. Let me just pause for a second. We don't use that word patriarch or patriarchy very often today because it's become a dirty word. But let me explain what the word means and why you should still use it today. Patri, patriarch, is the word for father. And arch, or arch, means over. So this is where the father is over the family. It's father rule. It's a father-led family or a father-led society. We call the men who began our country the founding fathers for that reason. Okay, that was the general understanding of the way things were to be. So how do we destroy the family? By destroying the American patriarch. How do we destroy the American patriarch? By taking away his power. How do we do that? By destroying monogamy. How can we destroy monogamy? By promoting promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, and homosexuality. Here's the point. This is an intentional strategy of the devil and his followers. The ridicule, destruction, shaming, and undermining of the male and female roles that God designed is intended to destroy fathers to destroy families, to destroy the church and the kingdom of God. Andrew Sandlin has pointed out that one of the main reasons our culture today wants to tear down the family is that it is the chief relationship that you do not choose. It happens to you. You're put in a family by God. It's not something you choose yourself. So our culture that is radically self-determining, I will be what I say. I will choose my own identity. A culture that says that will reject the family because you didn't choose your family. Maleness and femaleness are divinely determined and biologically encoded at conception. 
They're not subject to change. When we try to change God's design, we are rejecting the creator and instead we're worshiping the creature. When we try to create a category, for instance, called gay Christian, we're rejecting God's creation word. Now, of course, we are all subject to a variety of disordered passions, but that's exactly what they are, disordered. They are to be brought into alignment with God's word, not to be embraced and celebrated as a good identity. And the same thing is true, for instance, of the transgender issue. And this is nothing new. Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Why is it an abomination? Because it rejects God's word and God's design. It blurs the boundaries that God has set. It elevates the creature to the status of God and tells the creature that he or she is able to determine identity and reality. God's created order is also being rejected today in the issue of race and racism and ethnicity. God's good design is that all mankind comes from one man, Adam. We're all the same family. Race is not a biblical category. It is a socially constructed idea. In Athens, Paul told the crowd that God, quote, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So catch that. Separate nations with their own borders is God's design. But so also is the fact that every man in every nation comes from one man, Adam. There's no room in God's design for racism. Every man and woman from every nation and every ethnicity is created in the image of God. And today, critical theory is being used to drive a wedge between different people groups, largely based on skin color. It's all through the schools. Many of you are dealing with it right now in your diversity, equity, and inclusion training in your workplace. Those opposed to God are using the tool of critical theory and intersectionality to drive people apart into opposing groups. That has no place in the church. None. And by the way, the same theories are being used by the current administration as regards the vaccine. If you listen to what the current occupant of the White House said, he promised to protect the vaccinated from the unvaccinated. That's the language of critical theory. The unvaccinated are now the oppressors and the vaccinated are the oppressed, the victims. And the rhetoric is designed to divide, to drive a wedge and to set people against each other. And there's no place for that in the church. We spent time this morning in the beginning of the story, the first three chapters in Genesis. But if you were to go to the end of the story, you see a beautiful picture described in Revelation 5 in the throne room of God. The living creatures and the 24 elders are singing a song of praise to God. And here's what they sing. Worthy 
are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God's people is made up of every tribe and language and people and nation. I, I focused this morning on, on a few particular issues. There are others that we could talk about that are evidence of the way that this is going. The environment, uh, this past week, Union Seminary had a chapel service where they confessed their sins to plants. Brought a bunch of plants up on the platform, confessed their sins against the plants. It's environmentalism, which is elevating the creation to be divine. It's an issue of worship and not understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. Where this is going with technology is something that we need to be really tuning into, transhumanism and some of these other issues that are going to be coming up very quickly. There are now, in almost every branch of religion, robot priests. Protestant, Catholic, Hindu, Buddhist. There's a Buddhist temple that's hundreds of years old where you can go and when you go in, you deal with a robot priest. Artificial intelligence. The goal is that this robot priest will, over time, learn how to even better deal with the struggles and difficulties of each person that they serve. The virtual world is growing, and there's a debate now about the metaverse and the universe and which one is more real. Is the virtual world real? If it is, can you escape and just live there? Would a marriage in the virtual world be a legitimate marriage? And if it's not, then what about an affair? What if we could artificially, like made to order design the person that you wanted to have a virtual relationship with? At the end of the day, again, it's an issue of worship because now what we are doing is we're taking the work of our hands and elevating it. And we're not understanding what it means to be made in the image of God. Last word, and this will be more brief, the gospel, the promise of salvation. Embedded in the story in Genesis is what we call the proto-euangelion. Big fancy word. Here's what it means. Proto is first. Evangel is gospel. It's the first statement of the good news. It's Genesis 3.15. God's speaking to the serpent and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Notice that this is a battle. This is war. The serpent wants to destroy God's design and undermine God's word. But the promise of God is that the serpent will be defeated. Jesus is the descendant that God promised who crushes the head of the serpent. That victory has already been won. And now Jesus' kingdom is advancing and growing, but it's still a battle and we are on the battlefield. Our world wants you to think that there's no creator, 
There's no design, and that means there's no purpose. There's no goal. But the story that God tells is that history is going somewhere. Jesus has died and risen again. He is building his kingdom, and one day he will return. There will be a judgment, and Jesus' people will spend eternity with him forever. So ask yourself what side you're on. By way of application, let me give you three things briefly this morning. The first one is this, reject the lies. Our sin-darkened hearts are prone to believe lies. When Absalom was trying to undermine King David, he sat outside Jerusalem and practiced critical theory. Seriously. Listen to what he did. This is 2 Samuel 15, verses 2 through 6. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were a judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And listen to this. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom tried to drive a wedge between the king and the people by telling the people they were oppressed and they weren't receiving true justice. Don't listen to the Absaloms in this world. Don't believe the lies that either tell you you're guilty because of your skin color or you're oppressed because you're a woman. Don't believe the lies. Instead, listen to the truth of God's word. Reject the lies. Number two, stand for truth. Stand for truth. It's becoming increasingly more difficult and potentially dangerous to stand for truth. But God's people are not called to safety. We're called to loyalty to the Lord Jesus. Let me say that again. God's people are not called to safety. We are called to loyalty to the Lord Jesus. When Mordecai challenged Esther to speak up for their people, the Jews, to King Ahasuerus, Here's what he said. He said, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You and I are here for such a time as this. God has designed you and me for this place, for this moment in time. So stand for truth. And that's a call for our church as well. We need to be known as a people who stand firmly on God's word. That should be our reputation. There is no guarantee for our safety. There's no guarantee for the survival of our local church. But God's church will survive and will thrive. It doesn't matter what happens if the church gets essentially stamped out in the United States. God's church will survive. 
God will be glorified. His kingdom will advance. The question is, like the question to Esther, are you ready for such a time as this? Will you stand for truth? And third, embrace God's design. Men, lovingly lead like Jesus. Women, submissively follow like you're following Jesus. Believe God's word. Embrace God's design. Be the image of God in this world as God has designed us to be. Let's pray. Lord, these chapters of Genesis show us who we are and what we are for. And yet we have so many loud voices shouting at us that that's not true. We have things pulling us in so many different directions. Help us, please, to be able to reject the lies, to stand for truth, and to embrace your design. We thank you for the promise that is embedded in Genesis that you would send Jesus. And we see that you are faithful and true. You did what you said. You sent him. That sin has been defeated. And now we are on the winning side. We're simply called to fight the battle. Give us strength to do that. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.